And now get to Matthew 10, and I will do that as well. Last night, we looked at the first little section in Matthew 10 in the red letters here, and we saw that Jesus is calling the disciples to do something that he is going to call us to do as well in a slightly different way. Bring the gospel, bring the the good news of Jesus to the end of the earth. And tonight is a little more nerve-wracking, you'll see as we read this, because if last week's passage applies to us, I think tonight's passage should apply to us too. And this one's a little more scary So as I read this, and we'll start in verse 16, and we will read down to verse 33. Start getting uncomfortable with what Jesus might be saying to you, and then we'll uh, lean into it a little bit tonight. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10, verse 16, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you're persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly, I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. For me, the scariest part of the Christian experience is sharing the gospel with strangers. Have any other evangophobes in here? It's just me. I... I'm an introvert. You know, I love talking to people, but not strangers that I don't know about anything, right? If I go to a party, I'm like making a beeline to someone I know or for the punch, and then I go hang, hang out outside alone in the darkness. I, I'm not the guy who goes and talks to strangers about anything. And so in Christianity, I, I love Bible study and prayer, questing for holiness and building community and serving the Lord and helping others and giving. All that stuff is great, but... To go up to a stranger and talk to them about Jesus is the most terrifying thing imaginable to me. Even talking to people I do know about Jesus is 
terrifying to me because I hate making people feel awkward. Every time I'm on an airplane, I think, okay, God, you've probably put me on this airplane (laughs) so that I will talk to this person next to me about Jesus. And then I start thinking about how they're going to feel when they're trapped between me and the window, right? And they can open the door and jump out. And I start saying, hey, can I have a moment to talk to you about my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And they go, oh no, right? Hitting their waitress or whatever their steward is, call button thing. I keep saying the wrong word. Call button thing, right? sweating, like, why am I put next to this guy? When I first became a Christian, an older guy, a grad student at Cal, took me under his wing, and he said, hey, I want to meet with you every week. I want to disciple you. I've got this book I want to take you through. And so he walked me through the gospel and helped me understand how I could share the gospel with other people, in theory, right, I thought. And then week two, he told me about the Bible and how we can know that it's reliable and true. He taught me about community and the church. He taught me about worship and giving and walked through the spiritual disciplines. And it was a great little series until the second to last week, at the very end of our meeting, he said, next week, let's not meet here in this coffee shop. Let's meet across the street on campus at Sprawl Plaza. It's this plaza at UC Berkeley. I said, okay, cool. He said, let's meet at the fountain and let's just start talking to people about Jesus. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that, right? I didn't say that. I said, yes, all right, yes, that's the next step. I knew it, good, all right, wonderful. And I spent the next seven days doing two things. One, praying relentlessly that God would free me from that exercise. I was going to say unashamedly. I was very ashamed of it, but I kept praying, God, please just deliver me from this. Whatever you have to do, send me on a missions trip that lasts forever. I don't care. I just don't want to go there. It was like my Nineveh or something. So praying relentlessly and trying to figure out in my mind, how am I supposed to spark up a spiritual conversation with a stranger? Right, I was working on this paper on evolution. I thought, okay, I'm going to sit down with someone who's reading a book and say, what are you reading? And then they tell me, I say, oh, I'm reading a book on evolution. Have you ever thought about that? And they say, what? And then I say, uh, Jesus. And I had no idea, right? And I kept bouncing it around in my mind. How am I supposed to take this conversation towards spiritual things? And so and then I would think about it too much and just start praying again, God, deliver me from this opportunity. And I remember walking down Bancroft Avenue towards Sproul Plaza. I lived up on Warren or Piedmont. I'm coming down Bancroft and I'm praying, God, please, I'm so terrified, but this is going to be good for me. I got to get through this. I got to learn how to do this. This is going to be good for me. And then my phone rings and it was the guy, Steve. And very apologetically, he said, hey, I'm so sorry. I'm stuck in traffic. I'm not going to be able to meet you today. I said, oh, <laughs> oh, too bad. He said, well, well, I'll give you a call. We'll set up another time. We'll do it. And he never called me again. Right? And, I, and I thought on one hand, I thought, God has answered my prayers. <laughs> but on the other hand, I thought, but I feel like God has put me in this moment because he wants me to become good at this. Because this is a big part of Christianity is sharing the gospel with others, right? Isn't that what Jesus said? Last week we talked about it. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go and preach the gospel, Mark says, to every creature. Tell everyone about Jesus. And yet, the very thought of engaging with a stranger on spiritual things made me start sweating. And I knew that part of it was because I'm uncomfortable with strangers, and my parents had brought me up to not talk to them. And and yet, I I knew another big part of that was spiritual warfare. Like, this is an amazing thing. The words of the gospel bring life to people, and so there's nothing the enemy would want more than to keep those words inside of me. It's so hard even today to, to bring it up. 
just always feel like a gospel salesman in it. Back in the 90s, there was this, I think it was in the 90s, maybe it was from before then, I'm kind of from the 90s. Back in the 90s, there was an evangelism technique called friendship evangelism. Have you heard of that? And the concept was, like, listen, nobody wants a Bible salesman, nobody wants a gospel salesman knocking on their door. What people need is friends. And so if you want to share the gospel with people, don't just go up to a stranger or corner someone on an airplane or go out in the sprawl plaza and share the gospel with a stranger. Make friends with non-believers. Real friends, right? Take them out, have them to your home, go out to dinner, right? And in the context of your friendship, pray that God would give you an opportunity to talk about spiritual things and share the gospel. And I thought, you know what? That's better. That's easier. I can do that. I can be friends with somebody. And then pray that God gives me an opportunity. And I started thinking about that. And then I went to this conference. Paul and I went to Urbana in 2003. And I went to this seminar on friendship evangelism. And the guy's like, friendship evangelism is the worst. It's the worst. <laughs> He said, the problem is that these people know that you're just friends with them because you're trying to share the gospel with them. Like, you're a project to them. And I remember they brought forward all these people who were like, I was a project to a Christian, and now I'll never believe in Jesus, right? And I found out they weren't really my friend. They just wanted to share the gospel with me. I'm like, oh, no. Then what do I do? And they said, okay, here's the deal. Don't befriend people to share the gospel with them. Just befriend people, and if God brings up the gospel, good. I'm like, okay, that's even easier, right? That's great. I could do that. I could be friends with non-Christians and hope the gospel comes up. Like, that's the least awkward way of evangelism I can imagine. And and so I thought, this is wonderful. I'm going to devote my life to whatever you call this, just friendship and then maybe in quotation marks evangelism, right? And I'm just going to be friends with non-believers and sometimes it'll come up, sometimes it won't. And and so I started doing that. I started hanging out with non-believers and having friends that were non-believers and calling people on the phone that I knew that were non-Christians and catching up and talking about things and visiting with them. And and the gospel rarely came up organically. Sometimes it did. And and I did that for a long time. And and I started thinking, man, I'm not seeing a lot of fruit in this. Now, I've got some non-Christian friends here, but I mean, it's cool that we're friends, but someday we're just going to both go to, we're going to die. And, and I'm going to go one way, they're going to go the other. And I feel like they're going to be like, hey, didn't, why didn't you tell me? You knew this? And so I became stuck in between that rock and that hard place again. Okay, okay I feel like I don't want to do evangelism in a way that makes people dislike me or hate me or hate the gospel. But if I don't tell people the gospel, I'll have a lot of friends, and then they all go to hell. And I feel like in America, we've been kind of crafting, maybe it's other countries too, but I've lived in America, but maybe in America, we've kind of gone through these decades where we've tried to figure out how can you share the gospel regularly or live intentionally for the gospel regularly without being hated? Because the premise that it all started with was when you lose friends over the gospel, it's not working, right? And if you're friends with a non-believer and you share the gospel, they don't want to be friends with you anymore. You've done something wrong, right? If you share the gospel with someone on an airplane and they hate you for it, you've done something wrong. And so what's the way that we can live as Christians and try to share the gospel without making enemies, without making people hate us, without pushback? And then we read Matthew chapter 10 where Jesus says that you're going to go out and share the gospel and everyone is going to hate you. You're going to go out and you're going to go door to door doing evangelism. And sometimes they'll let you in and you'll stay with them. Sometimes they'll kick you out of their house. Sometimes whole communities will rise up against you and they'll drag you in front of the synagogue and they'll have you flogged for what you believe. 
Sometimes you're going to be dragged in front of governors and kings, and you're going to be praying that God gives you the words so they don't execute you when you stand before them. That's going to happen, he says. You will be hated by all men on account of me. You're going to destroy families, he said. Brothers are going to turn against brothers. Children are going to disobey their parents and have them killed. Family members are going to kill each other. He says in the next passage, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I'm going to destroy this world and turn it upside down, and everyone will hate you because they hated me. That's how it works. And if we follow this one through the book of Acts, like we did last week, and if you missed it, you can listen to it online, the same thing happens. And Paul and Timothy or Paul and Barnabas or Peter or whoever, they go into a city, they start sharing the gospel, and a lot of people start hating them. And so Paul will grab, like uh, Acts 14, 1 through 3, I think talked about this. Paul will grab a few of the disciples, and they'll kind of go, and they'll start meeting, and they'll start making disciples. Then the whole city finds out about it, and then they, like with pitchforks, they run them out of the city. And he goes to another city and he starts knocking on doors or he goes to the synagogue and he starts building relationships and sharing the gospel and doing amazing things and doing miracles. But then people turn against him and they say, he's turning the whole world upside down. Get him out of here. So he runs out of the city and they try to kill him. They beat him. They throw rocks at him. They send him out of the city. He survives. He goes to another city. He starts sharing the gospel. Paul was not very concerned about not making waves. Right, if I was one of the disciples in this passage we just read, I feel like when Jesus finished his speech, I would say, isn't there an easier way to do this? <laughs> like, can't we just go into the city and like set up shop and start like helping people? You know, like wash their feet or their camels or whatever people had back then, right? Go and volunteer in nonprofit agency and, and people will sometimes come to us and say, wow, you're doing good in this city. Why? And we tell them about Jesus. They'd be like, wow, Jesus seems cool. Tell me more. We'd be like, okay, wouldn't that be better than knocking on doors than getting kicked out of a city and then killed? Paul was killed for preaching the gospel. Peter was killed for preaching the gospel. James was killed for preaching the gospel. The disciples were all killed for preaching the gospel. Except John, I guess he got off... Nice, but everybody else, they preached the gospel, everyone hated them, they ended up getting murdered, and the gospel spread. And Jesus says, if you're going to do the things that I'm doing, people are going to look at you the way they look at me, with hatred and murderous eyes. So all week I've been looking at this, probably the last three weeks, I've been looking at this passage and said, okay, now what? <laughs> You know, do we go door to door? Like, do we become the soapbox people in San Francisco? Do we become louder and more irritating? And are we the people who corner people on airplanes? Because I've always felt like that's, that doesn't work, but maybe it does. A couple weeks ago, Daryl Wright was here. Remember that? From Cuba? And Daryl told us about a guy named Moises Prada who was some kind of brilliant scientist and saved and called into ministry. And so he left uh, this post as a scientist and he stepped into the gospel world. And he looked at this big city. Is it Santa Cruz? Is that what it's called? He looked into Santa Clara, Cuba. And he said, I, I feel like God wants, wants to use me and use his people to reach this city for Jesus. Thousands of people. 
And Daryl told us how, how Moises went and said, I'm going to knock on every door in that city, and I'm going to share the gospel with every household. And Daryl told us that he started doing that, and people started getting saved, and he built a church, and it got big. And, and as Daryl talked with us a few weeks ago, I, I found myself thinking, maybe we've drifted into a place where we're just really quiet about our faith and it's not working, and we need to go back to a place where we just share the gospel relentlessly. So last night, uh, Mark, Tyler, we prayed for, for you, Mark, and Tracy, and your team. They went down to Cuba last week, and so I got to sit down with Mark last night and said, tell me about Cuba, tell me about what's going on. And Mark showed me the pictures and the videos and said, God is doing amazing things. And told me a little bit about Moises and what he was doing in that city and the way that God is using him. And I said, Mark, I know you've got a long day tomorrow. Would you be willing to come and tell us a little bit about how it works? Like, what did Moises do? What, what did that ministry look like when he was knocking on doors? Is it still working? Is he dead yet, right? How, how, how is it? And, and Mark was gracious enough to come and join us tonight. So Mark, come on up. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in Cuba. By the end of this, I want us all to be terrified that God is calling us to go knock on doors. So I'm going to ask you too, after you tell us about Cuba, Mark is an amazing, not because you're an amazing man, you are one, but God has gifted Mark with giftedness in evangelism. I would, would you say that? It's spiritual gifts, it's not proud, it's spiritual uh, gifts. Or maybe he's not, but... I'll let you guys figure that out. <laughs> yeah, Mark is always sharing the gospel. So I'm going to ask you if you've, got, if you've got a moment at the end of this, give us some like pro tips. What does it look like for you when you share the gospel? I'm wow. going to ask you that, so all be right. ready for that. Okay. But tell us about Cuba first. First of all, you've got to notice, did you notice the shirts going on here? Yes, this are... says one thing, our wives dress us, Danny. I mean, yeah. look at this. Is that huh? like a Cuban it's the shirt? the 613 you know, shirt? preaching church. So, oh, you look uh, good. Yeah. All right. Uh, Cuba, wow. Thanks for praying for us, by the way. So we came back on Friday, uh, seven days, just traveling through that country. I look over here. Paul knows Moises as well. They traveled there a few years back. But Cuba's amazing. What God's doing all over the world. I mean, here in the United States, but also around the world. God is at work. He's building his church. In the 90s, mid-90s, just so you get what's going on, there were 1,300 churches in Cuba. Picture 1,300. Today, 24,000. Do you follow that? 1,324,000 churches in Cuba where the church basically is not allowed to be. And uh, there isn't religious freedom, although you may hear it. Um, but it's an amazing thing. The church is in house churches is what's going on here. And I could share with you why the church is exploding there, but that may be a little bit more of a different topic. Uh, but with Moises, he, he had this vision, and he's an amazing guy. I think, is there a picture of him, by the way, just so you can see him? I don't know if we got him, Danny. That's Moises. And uh, he, he's a brilliant scientist, knows Fidel Castro, knows, knows Raul, uh, gold-winning, awarded, brilliant guy. One of the most brilliant guys in all of Cuba left it all to follow Jesus. And he's a brilliant pastor, and yet brilliance is following the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he was in a uh, community, Santa Clara, 75,000 people. And here's a picture of Santa Clara. I just wanted you to see what it's like. I think the next picture took that from a rooftop. And uh, he felt like God was calling him to reach this area. Now, his church uh, will allow, what, 250 people there, Paul? That's what Luke envisions that it would allow. I asked my son. He went with Paul. So not a real large church in terms, but he grew his church to 5,000 people. How? By going door to door. And he raised up 40 teams 
and taught them to go into the community door by door. And I was like, tell me about this. How did this come about? And he goes, well, with a lot of training that I want to go into right now. But the experience that they had really moved me and how they were taught. They, they would go, literally their goal is to reach every one of the homes. They're still working on it. Um, uh, and, and they would go in teams, I think two or three, and they would just knock on a door. And Cuba is a, a country incredibly needy and in desperate uh, situation. I mean, they make $25 a month. It's a communist country. It's an island just off you know, the coast of Florida, only 90 miles out. Uh, but communist, and, 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 and it's just broken in, in so many ways. And uh, so the needs are beyond comprehension in many ways. Uh, the divorce rate is the highest in the world. And so these, these teams, they go door to door, and, and they just knock on a door, and they just introduce themselves as Christians and just, just strike up a conversation. They don't say they're part of a church. We're just Christians. We're here, and we're just wondering if we can share with you about the Lord. And if there's an openness, then they continue the conversation based on where the need is of the person that's revealed. They may say, yeah, my marriage is just, what does God say about that? Or my family's in disarray or economically or whatever. And, and these people will just, if they're willing to talk, they will take that conversation to the next level. And if the person is open to receive the Lord really right then and hear the gospel in that moment, they'll lead them to Christ. And then they'll say, would you like us to come back next week? And we can teach you more of the Bible. Or if it's on marriage, we can come back and teach you about that. Basically, these guys go there, and they are meeting the needs of that person spiritually, whatever their need is. They're not going there with an agenda. And even if they pray to receive Christ, they do not invite them to the church. That happens a year or two later when they're mature enough to handle a large church. Because if you just become a Christian, you walk into a church like this, you get lost, right? It's all about making disciples, which is life on life, pouring God's word into them. Now, if when they come to the door, the person is just like anti, they grace them, God bless you, we understand, and they go on to the next home. This is very biblical. You're going to come and see it later on in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus sends out the disciples and he says, look for the person of peace. And this is what they're doing, whether they realize it or not. That is a biblical model. You look for the person that God has obviously prepared to embrace your encounter. And, um, I mean, to jump ahead, that's how I do evangelism, Danny. And I have the privilege. For me, my arena is on the golf course. I golf with guys that don't know Jesus. And I've got story after story after story. That's my arena where I am with pagans. And I love to golf with guys. And then, you know, uh, I just see where God is at work, and I, and I nestle up to them. I befriend them. I love them. And, and, and the opportunities are unbelievable, the opportunities I've had to see guys right on the golf course pray to receive Christ because of love. People sense if you love them or if they think you're a project. Um, that's the difference. And what I saw there in their approach, they are loving— a community that is in desperation. And this is my view. People are in desperation all around us. They just have great facades on them. That sh But deep down, you know, people know there's something wrong with them spiritually. They know deep down there's a God, but they're pushing him away. And, and the Lord makes that known to us. 
I believe his Holy Spirit, this passage talks about the Holy Spirit will give you words, and you go forward in weakness with non-Christians. Um, and I would say probably, I don't know, uh, maybe it is a spiritual gift, Danny, because to me, I would be more freaked out about being week up, week after week after week, Danny comes up and he preaches without notes. Are you, are you following me? That's a little bit now, you know, when I'm overseas in certain settings, I love to preach without notes, but, you know, I study and Danny, but for me, I don't know, talking to non-Christians, I can't wait. You know, it's, it isn't, but it's, you know, it's like when you know what you're going to say, it's not scary, as long as you're led by the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying there aren't times that I'm not afraid, but that's far less than I just can't wait to see what God's going to do but I'm not going to push any buttons if I don't see the Holy Spirit opening the door for me to love on people. Now, where I'm challenged is this. Usually when I've shared the gospel with people on the golf course or when I, you know, lead someone to the Lord and have that privilege, the next thing I do is I say, oh, you need to come to our church. It's at three crosses. And you know what? What I came away with, and I'm still processing this, this is a different paradigm, is why not, Mark, do you not just say, hey, let's have coffee, man. For the next year, let me just spend time with you. And then not even know I'm a pastor. And not always do they know I'm a pastor, depending, you know, when I share the Lord and just what comes up. But for me, often it's like I'm so busy doing ministry, I just need to slow down and spend time with a neighbor or someone I meet you know, and just a year, take them through what God says about marriage or family or, you know, their issue in their life. And that's just a different uh, mindset that I think the Lord is speaking to me about that's really challenging me from what Moises was doing. And and by the way, they, they're a church of 250. They, they, they planted 87 of these groups. Basically what happens, they start discipling the person meet the needs in their life spiritually, and then they say, hey, would you mind, would you want to invite some of your friends to this as well? And they go, yeah. So all the friends come, and then all of a sudden they say, hey, would you like this to be a church? And they're like, um, sure, why not? And they'll grow that 20, 30, 40 people inside the church, and they just keep moving walls, and, and they kind of, if they're pastor type, they'll just move to the back of the church, and their home is there, and the church is, just gets bigger and bigger, and they're meeting there, and, and eventually that person who owns the home, if they, the church with the money will buy them another apartment for them to move out, and they've started the church there, if that makes sense to you. This is what's happening all over Cuba. It's incredible. They send out evangelists. They love people with their, meet their needs. They come to Jesus they, that home absolutely packs out with people, and they will bring a trained pastor to pastor that group of people and move the person who owned the home into another home, or they can stay there if they're qualified to pastor that group. And it's just happening everywhere across that country. The, the government does not allow the church to purchase uh, land. So it's like, what do you do? You know, the church is in, the government is actually forcing the church to expand at a level that they are creating because of their persecution. Now, um, I don't know, Danny. I could talk more about Moises and what this guy's encountering. We read here, and Danny preached on just, and Jesus talked about the level of persecution. Moises, just so you know, uh, on um, Thursday, we spent four hours with him. Moises now is like 
he has grown and people recognize his boldness as a leader and his intelligence. And he's now in Havana, the capital, and he is a prominent leader, part of the executive in, in a denomination there that I'm not going to mention publicly. But, but he's a key, one of the most key leaders in all of Cuba. And uh, he was just brought before the religious affairs top official in the government, communist, and was brought into a room, intimidated, and asked to sign a document that would confiscate 600 churches from the denomination. And they were trying to force him to sign the document so they could uh, repossess the home, the, these churches. <laughs> and Moises, he's a bold guy, and he said, there, no, I will never sign this document. And if you want a battle, you try to take on the church of Jesus Christ, and Christians will rise up, not only in Cuba, but around the world. And, uh, I mean, he just, now why are they trying to take the churches back? Because they're saying they're illegal. And Moise is going, illegal? I go, if you, he's like, if you gave us permission to have property, land, they would not be illegal. Just change your law and they'll be legal. That's what he's saying to the communist officials. He's like, you give land to every, you know, for Santeria, the, you know, witchcraft religion and all sorts of other you know, religious and cultic organization. Why not the church? And uh, so, you know, they don't know what to say, and they just kind of a standoff. And 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 he walked out of that room saying, "We will never sign that document." Persecution is happening there, an oppression of the church. He's had many death threats on his life. He's had times when he goes out, gets in his car, drives it, and the lug nuts have been taken off, trying to get him to crash. Threats. It's a real deal. We need to be praying for Cuba. And they, one more thing about him. hope I'm scratching the itch, Danny, where I should be. Uh, but uh, he is now, on Saturday, he's like, Pastor, please pray for us this last Saturday. They did something that's never happened in the history of Havana. They did a public march. A thousand people in his church marched down the streets to the town square. He did this in Santa Clara with 5,000 people, which had never been done before in the history of Cuba since it's been under communism. Police surrounded them and everything. And, and his response was, hey, we tried for five years to get permission for you, so for Christians to have this gathering. And, and you continue to not give it to us. And so this just happened. I don't know how it happened. It just did. And they're like, we know you know what you're doing. And he's like, hey, he, his, his, his thought is that Christians need, are in desperate need of a voice in the culture. And he is a bold warrior for God that's leading the church. And there are many other pastors as well. But we need to pray for Cuba. I have no idea what happened on Saturday yet with that march. You know, did, are, are there pastors in jail right now? Maybe. Are they celebrating their service this morning? I was like, what's going to happen Sunday morning? We're going to celebrate what Jesus did in this public march, and it was an act of love. They were going to, you know, go down the streets uh, uh, serving coffee and, and, and giving out bread and uh, doing haircuts. And just there's never been an act like serve the city ever publicly done in Cuba. But it's an expression of the church, and the church is just wanting to explode in love for its community. So anyway, those are a few things that are going on there, Danny. Um, you know, I just, I, you know, when it comes to just evangelism with people, it's being filled with the Spirit. It's being prayerful, anticipating 
that God loves this person so much, and I'm just looking for the, the, the cues to be able to just, uh, once I've gained a person's um, trust, I, you know, in a relate, it doesn't take long for a person to know you love them. And, and one of the biggest things I always ask people is, tell me your story. You know, most people have never had someone that's willing to listen to their story. And I just say, tell me your story, man. And, and they're like, really, you're interested? And they tell me their story, and I'm learning all sorts of things about them. And then in, in, invariably, it becomes, Mark, will you tell me your story? <laughs> and I tell my story. And it's just this moment. It happens again and again and again. To me, that's the, the greatest question I've learned to ask. And I think the Holy Spirit just impressed that on me one day. I've done that for years. It's the greatest opening, you know, when you have time with someone. Um, you want me to tell one more story in Cuba? Do we have time or how are we doing, bro? You know, I mean, just when, uh, let me share with you a moment of prayer that you will like and what God did, and then I'll turn it back. So last day, what we did in Cuba is we would go um, to church after church after church, visiting them. We have a team of 10 people, and we would just listen to their story and bless them and pray for them and, and just hear their testimonies. It was amazing. Uh, in these little house churches. It would just break your heart and, and just to hear what God is doing. But they all knew we were coming, and so they kind of prepared for us. And the last day I was like, hey, let's go to a pastor who doesn't know we're going to show up. <laughs> and let's just show up, 10 of us, and see what happens. So we uh, drive to an area. It was called the Ring of Fire. And it was called that because all the rejects of society and the criminals and the drug addicts and the alcoholics a lot of single parents were there. Their husbands were in jail. It was an area of just the outcasts. And we show up there. We heard there's a church planter there and his wife. And so we, we show up to this area. But I was like, okay, we're going to park the, the van one block ahead uh, of where this church is. I don't want to see him, you know, us driving up. And I go, describe for me the pastor. And so the pastor we were traveling with described me his look, so I knew it. And he has a wife, yeah, and she looks like this. I go, great. What, what's his background? Well, he's an alcoholic. He went through rehab. He was in jail. I'm like, okay, that's enough. I can work with that. So I got a translator with me. We find the gate. We walk through. And this house, it's all broken down. I mean, holes in the walls, two chairs, and he's in there. And I walk through the door, and, and his name was Nelson. And so I knew his name. So I'm walking through transit. I'm going, Nelson, I've been looking for you ever since we went through rehab. Nelson, you've changed my life. Remember when we were in jail together? And this guy's just like, he's like looking at his wife. And I'm like, your wife, she's more beautiful than you described her. And I'm like, just playing with the guy. But, you know, it was just so hilarious, you know. And finally, he's, he goes, he points at me, he goes, loco, loco. <laughs> And he gets up, and he walks, and I'm just, he just gets up. And, and we start following, like, where is he going? By that time, our whole team arrived. We went down, and we saw, is it, yeah, we, we saw this church that he'd been building. His house is in shambles, but there's this church. And show, show the picture of it so you can see the, the church. I think it's going to come up here. So you can see the frame of it is all it was. And so we go down, and we go, tell us your story. And he, and, and he, he says this. He says, 30 minutes before you arrived, my wife and I have been building this church to reach out to this community. 30 minutes before you arrived, we, my wife came to me. She goes, we are putting all of our money into this structure. How are we going to afford the roof? And Nelson said to her, he goes, woman, don't you have faith in God? And he said that with all the faith he had. 
And he's telling a story. He's going, 30 minutes ago we said this, and then you local pastor and your team show up. And, of course, we gave them the money to build the roof. And he's just, Nelson, who is in the right over there, he's like, we are witnessing a miracle. He's saying that. He's just, we're through a translator. We can hear it. And then I, then I kind of look to my right, and I see this guy in the yellow shirt. And I go, Nelson, who's this? Is this the assistant pastor? And he goes, no, this is a non-Christian. He doesn't know Jesus, but he's been helping me build the church. So as soon as I heard that, I'm like, God's at work in this life. I mean, no one comes and helps build the church unless God is at work in them. And for me, that's a key thing. When you see that God is at work in someone through something like this, you know the Holy Spirit's at work in their life. And so I'm like, okay, this guy, could he be ready? And so I, I, I went to him, and I just I took out a $20 bill, which is a month's salary in Cuba, almost. 25 is what the average Cuban makes. I said, Nelson, or I said, Rafael, that's his name in the middle. I said, God has seen you, your heart, that you would serve and build this church. I go, this is from God. This is God visiting you. And I gave him that money. I said, this is an expression of how much God loves you. I could see little tears coming up. And then I said, I said, Raphael, let me ask you a question. Do you have the faith right now to believe on Jesus as your Savior and Lord? And he just said, yes. And Nelson's like going crazy. Because he's been trying to, you know, reach this guy. And it's like, you know, he's laboring. But then, you know, someone else comes in to join the labor. and, and, And I said, okay, let's just right now, let's pray. And he repeated a prayer after me, English, Spanish, Spanish. You know, and, and, and it was just this beautiful moment, man. And he comes to Christ, and it's just like, thank you, Jesus, for what you do. When we just follow the Holy Spirit's lead, the Holy Spirit led us to this church. This guy came to Christ. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not what you know. Now, it helps to know the Bible and the gospel And this is a good time for me to plug Seminar 401. Come through our seminars. Let me spend four hours training you how to share the gospel. So at least you know how to do that. And I would love to do that with you. And I probably took in way more time than I should. Danny, come back. Yeah, that was wonderful. We talked last night a little bit about just that story with Nelson, how Mark is praying and his team is praying, God, lead us to somebody who needs you. And Nelson's at home praying, God, please lead someone here who could help me. And I think that's how it works a lot, that when we're praying, God, give us opportunities to share the gospel with someone. Inevitably, the person that God is leading us towards is having that same crisis. Like Mark said, God's working in their life already and he's preparing that person for that conversation. I want to leave you with a couple things to wrestle with here as we walk out. I know this is a night that we don't answer your questions. We just give you a bunch of more questions. Uh, let me give you a couple things to wrestle with. Number one, for those of you who have been kind of leaning into the, I'm going to build friends and hope the gospel comes up and it's not working for you. You know, like you've got a lot of friends now and they're all still going to hell and you're like, oh no, what am I supposed to do about this? Uh, what if what Jesus is prescribing, like what Mark was sharing in his gospel sharing experiences, what if what God is prescribing is that you would start praying that God gives you the guts to share the gospel and pray that relationships come out of it? That really what happens a lot of times is we accumulate all these friends and we have no opportunities to share the gospel and now we've got all these friends, but what if instead we start sharing the gospel and praying, God, I, I want to share the gospel with someone, have them end up a lifelong friend with me, whether they're believing or not believing or in the process or stepping over the line of faith or whatever it is, God, I want to share. And if people get scared away, okay, but maybe I'm going to share and someone's going to say, hey, I don't agree with you, but hey, let's have coffee, let's hang out, let's talk so that your friendship maybe can be more grounded in the gospel and let's just kind of hoping and praying that someday
way something comes up. That's one thing to think about. That's not from the Bible. That's just something to think about. This second one, for those of you like, that's not from the Bible. This one's from the Bible. This is what Jesus says when he says, don't be afraid of evangelism. This is what he says why. And the reason I want you to go home and think about this is because it's not like, because it'll be okay. You won't die. He doesn't say that. He says, don't be afraid of them. And he gives us three reasons that we shouldn't be afraid of these people we're going to share the gospel with and they're going to try to kill us. So the three reasons are, one, they hated me too. Don't be afraid of them if they hate you because they hated me too. Number two, don't be afraid of people because these things you're sharing are true and someday they'll be made known. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be scared to share the gospel because someday these things that are secret and hidden are going to be exposed to the whole world. So shout them from the rooftops now, he says. Does that give you peace of mind, maybe? And number three, don't be afraid of these people because they can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. And then he says, this is really scary. He says, rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And I don't think what Jesus is saying is that we should be scared of God like he's going to send us to hell if we don't evangelize enough because we know that we're saved by grace, not by sharing the gospel. But it seems like what Jesus is saying is if you're going to have some fear in your life, why don't you not be afraid of people who are going to persecute you for the gospel? Why don't you be afraid that God has the power to send these folks to hell and that should scare you a little bit. And don't be afraid of them. Be be scared of what's going to happen to them. And bring the gospel as an act of love. If you want to see a cool clip about that, Google, I think it was a Penn and Teller clip. Where the, Penn and Teller, did you hear about that? Where he talked about the gospel. This total atheist, pagan guy. I don't remember which one it was. was it Penn or Teller? The guy who talks. Uh, so Penn comes out and he's he just sitting in front of the camera and he says, you know what? After the show tonight, this guy comes up to me and he gives me a Bible and tells me he's praying for me and tries to share the gospel with me. He's like, listen, I'm, not, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in that. But, but something about what that guy did is admirable. Because I don't get the rest of you Christians. Like, if you really believe that I'm going to hell, why aren't you telling me? It's like, if you truly believe that I was about to step into the street and a train was, or not a train, a truck was going to hit me, wouldn't you pull me out of it? How can you stand there and live your life and really truly believe that I'm going to suffer in hell for eternity and not say anything? And so at least this guy said something about it, and I respect that. So Mark, if he was there, he'd be like, God's working on this guy. I'm going to share the gospel with Ben right there, but. Let me pray for you. We're going to receive communion in a moment, and that'll be a time for us to remember to proclaim the gospel. Jesus says that when you do this, you, or Paul said, that when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a sense, the first stage of sharing the gospel is receiving communion and realizing that Jesus died for my sins. He rose to new life. He is in me, and we proclaim that in our meal, and then we go out and proclaim that with our words and with our lives. Let's pray, and then we'll eat.